together to foster a healthy African diaspora community and promote mental health awareness through storytelling and celebrating all cultures. We're here to heal together. Tupone Pamoja. My name is Christine Kasakwa, and I'm your host here on the African Seal platform. Our guest today is Brittany Jade Anthony, and I came across Brittany through her YouTube channel. She was doing a video recording about her recovery journey, and I really resonated with her and everything that she was saying, especially because she wasn't the typical person we have in mind when we think of like someone who's going through recovery or someone who struggled with addiction, we tend to think that if someone looks good and they're well-kept, like nothing's wrong or nothing's going on. But I wanted her to come on the podcast today to share her story with us and her journey to sobriety and recovery, how things were, what led her to the battle with addiction and kind of what happened to lead her to where she is right now. Brittany is a blogger. She's a motherhood and lifestyle blogger on a mission to encourage and empower women. She's a mom to three beautiful children. She's a fitness enthusiast and a YouTuber. She definitely wears very many hats and she'll tell us more about them. So welcome, Brittany. Hi, Christine. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate you letting me on your space today and just having me be on your platform. Of course. Do you want to tell us a little more about yourself in case I left out anything that you would like to share about who you are? Yeah, you kind of hit the nail on the head. I'm a mom of three. I live in the Pacific Northwest um, Mm -hmm. and I am a lifestyle and motherhood blogger and I share my journey through recovery and um, with my health and fitness journey. I I dibble and dabble in a little bit of everything. I'm a stay-at-home mom and I also have a small craft business that I run. Yeah, just living life. Do Do you mind sharing with us a little bit on your background, where you were born, where you grew up, how you grew up? Um, yeah, I was born in Arkansas, uh, which is, you know, it's down in the South. I was born in Arkansas and then I was only in Arkansas for about three months or so. And I grew up here in Washington. So I'm from Tacoma, Washington. It's like a small, it's like a smaller Seattle It's about 30 minutes south of Seattle. A lot of people know like Seattle when I say it, Um, but I grew up there and I spent pretty much my entire adolescence there through young adulthood. And um, yeah, now I live on Whidbey Island. It's a small little rural island, like two and a half hours north of Seattle area. And so how was the home environment of like where you grew up? What was life like at home? And did you have any traumas, like childhood traumas or... Yeah. So my home life, like I guess from the outside looking in, I had just your regular middle class life growing up. Like we always had like a nice house. We always had um, food, clothes, like we didn't struggle. I'd say we were definitely middle class and we definitely were a family that liked to keep up with appearances. Um, However, my mom was married to dad and um, he was extremely abusive. Um, so I grew up in a house where I learned from pretty early on that what happens in our house stays in our house. And we went through a lot of abuse and I just grew up thinking that that was normal, that that's how everyone lived and that we just didn't talk about it. Um, so it was pretty 
traumatic um, because my stepfather, he was an alcoholic and a drug addict, and he was very physically abusive to both me and my mom. And so I struggled a lot with like insecurities surrounding, um, you know, just not having a positive male role model in my life. I didn't, I didn't know my biological dad until I was much older and just, I had a lot of trust issues, obviously, um, in adults. So you said that your stepdad was an alcoholic. Was this kind of like your intro to drugs, like having drugs at home? No, um, I actually did not know that that's what he was struggling with. I really just thought he was crazy. Like as a child, I've, I've, I've learned in adulthood that like children don't really see like substance or alcohol, you know, um, if it's not present in the home. So like, as far as I knew, like my parents didn't ever drink or anything like we never in our house or anything like that. I was actually introduced to alcohol because in middle school, um, my neighbor, she lived across the street from me and we would walk to school together a mile every day. And at her house, at her house, um, her parents actually had like a liquor cabinet. And so the first time I was ever really like introduced to it or had any interest in it was when I walked to her house in the morning to get her for school. And, um, we decided to raid her parents. So that was kind of like my intro. Yes. So my drinking and um, my drinking started fairly young. So I was like in middle school, like I said, so I was 12 in the seventh grade. And um, from that very first drink, I'd say like, I, I kind of, I remember thinking like, it was so much fun. Like we, it was seven in the morning and we were 12 years old walking to school, like just drinking liquor out of water bottles. And I, I just remember thinking like, wow, we're so cool. And this is so much fun. And, um, I think that really helped me with my self-esteem because for the first time I felt a sense of confidence. It really kind of like sparked this whole idea of, I, I'm lacking in confidence, but when I have this substance, I automatically feel more attractive. I feel more comfortable within myself. I feel like I have arrived, if that makes sense. And mm -hmm. um, the drinking definitely, you know, I, I didn't drink much throughout middle school, like just, you know, whenever we could kind of get our hands on it. But it was a constant thing for me um, up until the point where I reached high school or became more readily available as I got older. And there were older people at high school and we started hanging out with older people, like the older crowd. I always wanted to hang out with the older kids who had access to, um, the alcohol and the parties. And I kind of fell into that whole lifestyle of wanting to party with my friends and wanting to go out on the weekends. And I really just indulge, I loved the idea of being the life of the party, um, mm -hmm. which ultimately was just me like being the blackout drunk one. But I thought that that's what made me popular and that's what gave me some sort of status um, in high school. So it definitely evolved as I got older, for sure. And do you think that this became your way of escaping, like your form of escapism to doing the alcohol, like it kind of helped you to get your mind off of like what was going on at home? And oh, like yeah, definitely. I had a lot of unresolved um, childhood traumas that I never got help with. Like I never sought therapy as a child. My parent, my mom never after she left the abusive marriage, like she never sought therapy for me or for my brother. And I think we both struggled emotionally just because we had no way, uh, we had no healthy coping mechanisms and we had no one to talk to about how we were feeling. And it was kind of a, just another thing that was sort of swept under the rug. And so I definitely um, was looking for a way to escape. And I also had really negative self body image from being overweight as a child and um, just my family um, having 
really triggering things to say about my appearance. So just that coupled with all of the abuse, um, it definitely was my way of escaping and just finding comfort and solace. How did this affect your academics? Because you did go to college as well. Right. Um, It actually did not affect my academics. And I honestly think that that was part of the reason why I was able to um, fall through the cracks, I'd say, um, because I think that with a lot of troubled teens, troubled children, um, the first indicator that something's wrong is that they start misbehaving um, in their in their behaviors or they start uh, messing up in school with their academics. And I always held really high grades. I was always really book smart and was able to get things done. I don't know how I made it through high school, but somehow I finished high school with a running start, um, AA degree as well. Um, my junior and senior year, I decided that I had enough high school credits that I wanted to also attend running start. And so that's something that I did through high school. And I honestly don't know how I managed to do it. But for some reason, school and academics and, and studies and homework and things like that, that never really fell to the wayside for me at that point in my life. And fast forward to college, um, where did you end up going to college? I went to the University of Washington. Mm -hmm. And I studied communications with an emphasis on journalism. That's kind of like what you're doing right now, though. With it sort of is. You know, it's so crazy is that I was just telling a friend this the other day. I actually was making a video and I was saying in the caption how I, you know, like years, like, you know, 10 years ago, I wanted to be a journalist. I wanted to like be on the news. I wanted to um, report stories and I wanted to basically be in a place to speak my opinion, like in the media some way. And this was back in like, I went to college in 2008. So this was like before the boom of social media, before this was ever a thing. And I remember at the time of during college, I said journalism was kind of taking a shift and social media and and computers in general were sort of taking a boom. And I didn't want to be chained to a desk or like in a desk position. And I was unsure of what I wanted to do with my life. And I just said, I was thinking back like, wow, I can't believe at one point I wanted to be a journalist. And now I'm like a stay at home mom who just like records videos and like (laughs) is on social Mm -hmm. media, but it's kind of the same thing. It is. It's like telling stories and it's, um, visual arts and representation and it's, uh, video editing and, you know, all of the cool things. So it kind of is, it's like my own little form. Fast forward to college and your young adult life, you do get introduced to other drugs as well. So how did that happen? From How did that escalate from the alcohol to other drugs? Right. So with the disease of addiction, like it really doesn't matter so much the substance. I feel like for myself in particular, like I was always trying to reach like the next level of intoxication. Um, I always wanted something stronger. Like, so for me with drinking, it was like, I always wanted to like black out the quickest. So I wanted like the strongest liquor. Like I didn't, you know, I wanted to completely escape. And I knew that with other, with other substances, I would be able to do that quick, more quickly. And, um, I also just kind of wanted like the thrill of it, like, cause it was, that's what I remember it being. I remember it being kind of thrilling to try like new and exciting, um, substances. And so in college I was introduced to, uh, different like pills. Like a lot of people did Adderall in college, uh, to help them study and and stay awake after like partying all weekend. And, um, I started experimenting with some of that. And then I was also introduced to cocaine during this time. It was just like a different, um, I had moved from the small town I grew up in, in Tacoma to actually Seattle. So it was like a really big city. It was the first time I was living alone and I didn't know how to manage my partying in school at this point because I had no one really 
to check in with, if that makes sense. College is definitely less structured and it's more dependent on you. And as someone who had like no coping mechanism, no schedule, no real like idea of how the days are supposed to be formulated. Like I just kind of fell into this trap of spending so much time partying and not being able to really balance out school. So I found myself like needing to like stay awake to study or try to finish school. So I started struggling with that. And I was introduced to the the pills and the Coke and it was kind of like a different vibe. And so that's how I was introduced to those substances. And then um, my second year at college, I actually did um, go into a bit of, I had, I guess you could say it was like a, a bit of a, like a drug induced psychosis because I was not sleeping, not really eating that well. Um, just doing a bunch of cocaine and pills. And, um, I kind of went into like a, like a mental psychosis where I just wasn't sleeping. And I had an episode where I had attempted suicide. Um, and I jumped out of my second store window, um, at my sorority house and my parents were called and it was this big ordeal. And it was at this point where my parents basically told me, cause they knew that I had like a substance issue with drinking and stuff like that, but they didn't quite realize like how bad it was. And I guess this episode scared everyone enough that, um, it was brought to their attention that I needed some sort of help. So at that point I moved out of the apartment and moved back home with my parents, um, so that I could attend my first like outpatient facility while still trying to go to school, um, mm-hmm. commuting up there to school. And I tried to do outpatient and, um, I've gone to several, uh, alcohol and drug facilities, two outpatient, three inpatient. And each time I kind of went because my parents made me or because I had like ultimatums thrown at me. So the first two times were outpatient and I just kind of breezed through them. My second time in outpatient, um, I was 22 and um, they had put me on a drug called antabuse, which is like basically a pill that you can take to uh, get sick if you drink alcohol with it. And I would still drink through it anyways. And so um, I decided that I was done with that because I didn't want to continue to be sick or anything. And so um And then right after I got done with that treatment program is when I actually found out I was pregnant with my first son. And so I, um, I, it's kind of a crazy story because me and my son's father, uh, my son's father's actually from Africa. He's from Zimbabwe. And, um, he wanted me to live there with him. And I said, I would go and visit for a month to see if I liked it. And I ended up staying there with him in Zimbabwe for about seven months of my pregnancy. And I knew that I kind of had an issue because I was still drinking wine. Like I, I told myself, Oh, it's okay to still have like a glass of wine a day, but it would really be like two or three glasses throughout a majority of my pregnancy. And thankfully nothing's wrong with my son by the grace of God, you know, everything is okay. And he didn't suffer anything. Um, but that is just a part of my story and just goes to show like how strong the hold was on me even during that time in my life. Thank you for sharing this. I know this is like taking you back down memory lane as well. So this is hard to share. So thank you, by the way. Yeah, of course. I mean, no, it's, it's definitely like, I think that it's important to, to share openly because it's so, it can be so shame inducing. And I've worked through so much of this with like counselors and stuff. Like I don't, I don't hold shame to this anymore. Like this is just a part of my story. It doesn't define who I am. And, you know, I think when you find recovery and when you find this mental freedom from the chains of addiction and you find true happiness, like you can walk with your head held high while still sharing very crucial parts of your past 
because I think by sharing it can, you know, someone else might hear this and think like, wow, like I silently struggle with this as well. And I hold so much shame because of what I did. You know, a lot of us, when we struggle with addictions, we do things that we think are like the absolute worst and that nobody else could ever understand. So I think it's important to talk about. So you did talk about how you jumped off the second story building of that house. And was this still not your rock bottom moment? Oh, absolutely not. No, I had a good, I had a good uh, five more years of runs. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, no, it was actually not my bottom. So this was, um, I was 22 at the time. I actually didn't get sober until I was 27. Um, And so, like I said, at the time in college, I was just doing like pills and um, some cocaine and drinking a lot, a lot. And a year after I had my son, I got charged with my first DUI. So I was actually not able to drink at all because I had a breathalyzer and you know, that was the first time I had ever been arrested. So I knew, you know, like you would think that that would kind of stop me in my tracks, but just when I wasn't allowed to drink anymore, that's when I knew I wanted other substances that I could, I could drive and function on. So I started like smoking weed and, um, around this time, I think it was 24 or something when all of this happened. And, um, I was introduced to, um, painkillers and around this time, there was not like a lot of regulation with painkillers. So they were a lot easier to get, um, until they weren't easy to get anymore. And so with the boom of Percocets and then the steady, like, or the quick, the way in which they were quickly taken away, um, it caused a surge in other opiates coming into the marketplace. So, um, I had done Percocets for quite a while. And then I was introduced to like smoking Percocets, which is like a different way of ingesting them. And then once those were not available anymore, they were too expensive. um, That's when I was introduced to the heroin. And that was ultimately my, my drug of choice. I went, I went down rather quickly um, while I was using that drug, just because it's something that with everything else that I was doing in life, like I could, I could kind of stop and not feel sick or anything. I just, it would be annoying to not be able to use. Um, but with a the heroin, there was actually like a physical dependency where I would actually physically get sick if I wasn't using it. And I didn't know anything about like actual withdrawals. Like I never with, I never went through withdrawals while drinking or anything like that. But, um, with the opiates, I experienced physical withdrawal symptoms and didn't know what that was. So I would have to use con- constantly. Um, So that journey and that process, it led me to not being able to keep a job, not being able to care for my child. My son was having to like live with my mom and dad, my, uh, my mom's newer husband. Uh, and it basically rendered me useless as like a, a human being. I I just felt like I didn't contribute to society at all. Like I was, I was living with like my drug dealer boyfriend and I, I wasn't, going anywhere in life. And my last saving grace was I was about to turn 26. And I knew that when I turned 26, I was going to get kicked off my parents' health insurance. And so I said, well, I've already been to two inpatient facilities. I know that if I don't get help before I turn 26, I'm not going to have health insurance and I'm going to end up in like the Salvation Army or like, I'm going to be the bum under the bridge, you know, if I don't get help. So I started finding, with my last shred of wits or smarts, I just said, well, I'm going to go to treatment 
while I still can go with this insurance. And, um, I, I wasn't able to find a place to let me in because I had been kicked out of one treatment center before. And then all of the treatment centers in the area that accepted people my age, because I was a little bit older, um, they were full. So I went and this was, I started looking in October, my birthday's in November. So I went the whole month kind of looking, still using, but looking, I was motivated to look. And then two days after my 26th birthday, I found out that I was accepted into a program and that I could go. And I was nervous because my birthday's in November and it was right before the holidays. And I was like, no, I don't want to go. Like, you know, I want to, I don't know what I was telling myself that I just wanted to stick around for one last hurrah during the holiday season or whatever. And obviously Mm -hmm. that didn't work out. So on November 25th, it was the day before Thanksgiving in, um, 2015, I checked myself into a detox facility where I spent the next seven days going through a pretty horrendous detox. Um, because my sober date is November 26th, 2015. And that was Thanksgiving day. And there was no doctors in the facility because it was a holiday. So I had to go through physical withdrawals completely on my own. Um, and it was pretty, it was a pretty rough weekend. Um, but I think that I needed it because during that time is when I really feel like I heard God's voice clearly speak to me and I'll never forget it. I get chills all the time, but I heard very clearly just him telling me that it's okay to let go. And like, it's okay to let go of all of the past traumas. It's okay to let go of all of the past thoughts that I had on myself, all of the past self-esteem issues that I had, all of the um, past situations that happened in my life that I felt that I let define me and that I let keep me back. And it was okay to just let go of this lifestyle that I had been fighting for so long to live. And, um, when I got out of that detox facility, I was more willing to go forward with whatever they told me I needed to do to stay clean. Cause I, I kind of figured this was my last shot. Like I was an adult. I had no help. I had nothing. I had to kind of pull it together. So I checked into a residential treatment facility. It was an all women's facility. And I did a 28 day stay there. I followed everything that they recommended me to do. Um, I got a sponsor right away. I went to the meetings right away. I basically did everything that they told me to do there. I, I did the therapy that they offered and I really learned like the importance of like women fellowship and opening up with other women. And I was just able to have an experience there that I've never experienced before. And I was sober for the first time for like the longest I had been sober. And then after that treatment facility, I went into transitional housing, which is kind of like, it's kind of like a halfway house. It's like one step down from treatment. You live with other sober people. And that's how I was kind of transitioned into regular life as a sober person. Did you do AA as well in conjunction with... Um... I did. Yeah. So I got a sponsor, like I said, right in treatment. I followed the 12 steps. So um, I did work with my sponsor. I had several sponsors in the first year of, of my recovery, um, but I did. I worked through the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. I worked through the steps of Narcotics Anonymous. And um, I also worked through the sex of uh, the steps of Sex, Love and Addicts Anonymous, which is like a mm-hmm. codependency style 12 step program. Basically, all of the A's or anonymous groups, I've pretty much have been familiar with it. Um, I've even um, attended like Overeaters Anonymous and stuff like that. I think that the foundation that I built in 12 step programs really helped me identify, um, you know, 
past traumas that I lived through and really kind of showed me a way to live life um, Mm -hmm. with how I treated people, with how I treated myself, with how I was able to speak to myself, speak positively over myself and stuff like that. And how has your life changed since becoming sober? Um, It's changed tremendously. So kind of going back to right when I got out of treatment, they don't recommend you like getting into relationships right when you get out, but I am a rebel in every sense. And my first <laughs> year sober, I was still pretty toxic as a person and I wanted to do my own thing. And um, I met someone when I only had like, what, right when I got out of treatment, I think the next weekend I was at a meeting, a late night meeting and I met this guy and I remember I looked at him and I was like, I told my friend who I was there with and I was like, I'm going to marry this guy. I I just loved him right away. And we started dating and I found out that I was pregnant with my daughter and I only had like two and a half months clean at this time. And I was so nervous because I obviously my, my first son was still living with my parents and he had just went to go and live with his dad. And I didn't know what I was going to do. Cause I was living in a halfway house. I had no job at the time, no nothing going on. And I had just met this guy and I was like, I'm going to just go ahead and have an abortion, you know, because I'm not in the right space to have a child. And, mm-hmm. um, I ended up going to my doctor's appointment and found out that my daughter's birthday, like her due date. Cause you know, they give you the estimated due date of when you're do when you, when you find out you're pregnant. And they told me that my due date was November 26th, 2016. And I felt like that was a sign from God because I said like, what are the chances that that would be my due date? Right. On the paper and to see that, to see it on the paper, it really connected with me. Like I felt like, you know, all throughout my life, I've, I felt God shots, you know, and, and God's calling over my life. And I just seen that number. And I said, well, I'm going to keep my baby, you know, like I, I can't something about seeing that date. And it felt like a sign to me that I could get through it, you know, because that I said, and when I got clean, I said, I'm not, I'm not going to give up my sober date. I'm going to stay sober. So my sober date was something I repped all the time. I talked about it all the time. I was like, I'm going to keep my, I would count up my days. Like I got 30 days clean, 60 days clean, uh, 45 days clean, you know, so I'm going to keep my sober date. And so to see that paper, and to see that she was due on that day, I felt like that was God telling me to like trust him and to move forward with my pregnancy no matter what. And then I was like, well, she's not actually going to be born on that day because, you know, babies are never born on the estimated due date from the first visit. Like it's mm-hmm. it's never really the chances of that happening are very slim to none. Um, but my daughter was actually born on November 26th, she was born on my sober date. So we actually, wow, yeah. So the day I turned one year clean was the day I went into labor and that she was born. And my daughter is like, she is like my little miracle. Like she literally saved me. I don't believe that if I wasn't pregnant so soon that I would have stayed sober. I had gone to several treatment centers. Um, I was unable to stay clean after I would leave the program. I was unable to keep it together. So I think that I know that it was God's calling on my life to kind of sit me down and make me pregnant. Then for us to share that date together, it just, it makes me fight for my sobriety even more because it's such a special, uh, it's so symbolic. Like this is Mm -hmm. what I'm supposed to be doing. This is why I'm supposed to be doing it. My daughter never has to see me loaded. Um, She never has to experience like having a drunk mom or a mom who's in trouble with the law. Um, And it was really symbolic for me. And I basically started a whole new life like that. Her her father did stick around. Um, He was present and we stayed together and we got married and we've been married this August. We will have been married for three years. Um, We have another son. Um, He 
is about to be two in August as well. And, uh, we bought a house. Um, I, uh, ended up getting a job, uh, like a, a job at a hospital. And I was there for four years before I actually just left this last October to be a stay at home mom and run my small business and do this blogging thing full time. And so life has done a complete 180 for me. Sometimes it doesn't feel real. And sometimes when I talk to new people or people that didn't know me back then, and if I share parts of my story, it's kind of, it seems like they think that it's not real. Like they can't even imagine they can't connect the two lifestyles because I'm, I'm such a different person than I was back then. And I think that it's, I, that's part of the reason why I still share, because I think it's important. I think that people need to know that it's possible to recover. It's possible to change your life. And even when I was at the lowest point of my life, I still looked exactly like I do now (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, because I was able to hold appearances together. Appearances were always so important to me. I never looked like, like the ratty person who didn't shower or, you know, who didn't like take care of their teeth or anything like that. I very much so didn't want to like look like a drug addict, even though I was, and that was always really important to me. And even still now, when I tell people my story and they're like, wow, like you don't look like somebody who would use drugs. And I'm like, and I always question, I'm like, oh, wow. So like, what does a person who uses drugs look like? Because in this mm-hmm. country, you've got doctors, judges, pilots, like addiction and alcoholism does not discriminate. It is subjective to everyone across any socioeconomic board, any race, gender. It, it does not discriminate, literally. It's still so taboo. And I don't know why. I like that you touched on that. Because mm-hmm. when I was watching your YouTube video, I was like, really? She went through that? Because I couldn't believe it. Yeah. You know? And I was like, how, if I'm thinking like this, then how many of us are out there assuming that everybody's okay, but we don't know like what's going on secretly in people's lives. Oh yeah. You know? But your life has changed when you're telling your story about your daughter's birthday. I got chills. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's one of those, it's like, there are very few genuine surprises in life. And they're very, I feel like if you're very intuitive or if you have like a relationship with your higher power in any sense, like he will definitely give you signs throughout your life if you are open to receiving them. And that was one of the biggest, like symbolic symbols that he's ever blessed me with to just let me know that I'm on the right path. And how have you continued to maintain that? When I moved, when I got out of the treatment facility, I never went back home. So where I went Mm -hmm. to treatment was like 45 minutes north of the city I grew up in. Um, And I never went back home. I moved into that halfway house, which was like just down the street from my treatment facility. Um, And I just, I never went back home. I, I got a new Facebook page. I deleted my old Facebook, my old Instagram, all my old social medias. I got a new everything. I, I deleted my, I got a new cell phone, get a new cell phone number. I basically had to start from the bottom. Like I just started making friends who were also sober. I started hanging out with a lot of women who were in AA rooms. And, you know, I made all of my friendships based around me being in sobriety. Um, so I had to like start anew and I still have some friends from high school now, but, um, when I first got sober, like there was no way that I could connect with them or hang out with them. Cause they were still doing you know, they're still going out to bars, even if the, even the ones who didn't necessarily have like huge problems with drinking or anything like that, like they were still able to drink and socialize and go out. And like, I couldn't do that anymore. So Mm -hmm. there was a time where I wasn't really hanging out with anybody I knew from before, but yeah, I definitely had to change everything. What coping strategies have you implemented in your life that help you maintain that healthy state of 
mental, physical, and emotional wellness? A lot of therapy. I think that also in the Black community, there is like this huge stigma against like receiving mental health um, help and going to a therapist and being open with a therapist. Um, I think that that is so important. I have a regular therapist that I see on my own. Me and my husband see like a marriage counselor. You know, we try and go like once a quarter or something like that. Um, I sought therapy heavily my first three years in recovery. Um, it was like a day, it was like a, you know, weekly part of my life. And I also, like I said, I, I did work the 12 step program. So I had a sponsor, um, who I did work the 12 steps with, which is like an entire process. It's basically like one step down from having a mental health therapist. It has you the the 12 steps kind of take you through your life's journey and they teach you about how to forgive and how to make amends with every single person you've ever done wrong in life. And that was very, it was very much so a freeing experience for me. And um, working with a therapist helped me to unpack some of the uh, childhood traumas that I went through. And it helped me work through some of the things that I was not able to like put into words as a child. It also helped me learn to work through like some of my emotions. Like I was very much so a hard shelled exterior person. Um, Like I didn't like to cry or like show major emotions. And so I was able to break down those walls essentially with, with help from a therapist and just, you know, allow myself to be vulnerable enough to like show like, Hey, I'm human. I have feelings. Um, and that it doesn't make me soft or weak. And, um, I think just through that, that, that foundational experience, like the first three years, like it really set me up for success. And now I, I find, I find it very therapeutic to share my story and to, you know, make my YouTube videos and be very open and transparent about my recovery and just have like my social walls be open, my social inboxes be open to people who might be struggling or, you know, never saying no to an opportunity to share my story, whether it be like through a podcast or guest appearances on someone's YouTube channel, um, speaking at a meeting, if someone ever asked me to, hosting an AA meeting. Um, I do, I just try to remain open and transparent and mm-hmm. I find it very therapeutic to share about my story and to kind of look back on life's experiences because sometimes it can be really easy to kind of forget, you know, it's been, I'll have six years clean in November. So sometimes it can be kind of hard to remember even for myself to be like, Oh yeah, like I used to do that. Um, it's nice to, to not forget. And in the beginning of your sober journey, what other things did you implement in your life when you felt like, oh, wow, I'm, I wish I could have a drink right now? I was really blessed to not have um, to not struggle with cravings. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not the case for everyone. However, that is a part of my story. I was really blessed to not have to deal with any cravings. Um, I kind of rode the recovery pink cloud. Um, and that lasted for me. I have, I can, I can honestly say that I've never been in a space since I got clean where I'm like, wow, I really want to just get loaded. Um, like the spirit of just really wanting to get loaded or wanting to get high, like that was completely lifted from me after my experience, my last experience in detox. Um, when God really spoke to me and said that it was okay to let go. And just, I think everything that happened after that, I was never put in a situation or an experience that was too hard for me to bear. Um, and I had the tools in my toolkit, um, from all the women that I met, all I utilized a lot. Like I would call people if I was ever feeling down or, 
you know, I would be really open about my feelings. So I think all of those things together just really helped me. Is there anything else you'd like to share with someone out there who may be struggling and they just don't know how to start this journey? Because it seems like it's so hard to just make that first step. Yeah, I think that the first step, the one that's most important is just admitting it to yourself. Like sometimes we can be our own worst critic and we can also be the one to like trick ourselves the most. Um, So I think admitting to yourself that you actually have a problem. Like I know for me, like when I hit that barrier of, oh my gosh, I'm going to be 26 years old without health insurance and I'm not going to be able to get well because I knew at that point I had the physical dependency. So that really shook me like to my core and let me know like, Hey, I'm not going to have much more opportunity to do this. I know I have a problem. It's time for me to admit it and stop trying to live a lie. Like everything is okay. I think a lot of times when you're struggling, you like to tell everyone like, I'm okay. I'm fine. I can stop whenever I want to, but you have to have an honest look in the mirror and have an honest conversation with yourself. And I think that's the most important step because everything after that, you'd be more willing to do it. And for those listening and they're resonating with everything that you're saying and they just want to maybe talk to you or find you on social media, how can they reach you? Oh, yeah. I'm the I'm Brittany Jade Anthony underscore on Instagram, on TikTok, um, Brittany Jade Anthony on YouTube. You can shoot me a DM, email me, <laughs> you know, <laughs> however. Um, but I'm pretty much on every single uh, social platform. Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, just with my name. Um, and I'm always down to answer DMs and, you know, just have conversations. I talk to a lot. I, I love meeting a lot of new people um, that way. Thank you for coming on today, Brittany. Thank you so much for sharing your story. I'll also share everything else in the notes where people can find you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for your support. Please be sure to leave us a review. That will be very beneficial. It will help put this podcast on the map so others can find it. Be sure to check us out on Instagram at Africans Heal. Check out our website at africansheal.com. Share this episode with a friend and be sure to tune in next week. You do not want to miss it.